Hello, listeners. This is Impacting the Classroom, the podcast that addresses some of the many policies, challenges, and research that impacts early education. I'm your host, Marnetta Larimer. So, what's impacting our classrooms? Today, you'll hear another familiar voice from earlier this season. Dorintha Strickland is the director of the Jefferson Early Childhood Network in Louisiana. If you didn't hear her talk about the groundbreaking work she's been doing to improve Louisiana's quality improvement system, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. So Rintha, I'm so excited to have you back. Well, thank you so much for having me back. It's exciting to be here and share some of the work we're doing and give you some updates on what we're doing now in Jefferson to impact the classroom. Wonderful. I told you we needed another episode. It happened, (laughs) right? And today we're joined by another Louisianan, Jen Roberts, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Agenda for Children, a statewide advocacy organization working to improve the lives of children throughout Louisiana. Welcome, Jen. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be joined uh, by Sorrentha, my good old partner in crime and good work. That was a great segue. So partner in crime, (laughs) Jen. And Sarintha, <laughs> tell me how you know each other <laughs> and work together. Jen and I serve in similar roles in South Louisiana. Jen has multiple hats, like a lot of us. Um, you introduced her in her role as this for Agenda for Children, the statewide child care resource and referral and advocacy center. But we also serve as the executive directors of lead agencies and Ready Start Networks. So these are the networks that pull together publicly funded programs in our parishes. And Orleans and Jefferson are neighbors, and they are the two largest networks in the state of Louisiana. Absolutely. And I had a different career prior to joining and getting back into the early care and education field. I was a foundation administrator. And when I transitioned over into my new role in 2018, I had heard Sorintha's name for years and years and was really excited when I asked around, who do I need to go connect with to kind of figure out how to do this work and to do it well? Sorintha was at the top of the list. And so she and I connected in a you know, 2018 coffee shop and since then have really relied, I think, on each other for advice and expertise. And I think we push each other in really good ways to think about the work differently, given the complexities of each of our communities. Most definitely. So lots of interconnectedness (laughs) in your roles over a long period of time. Um, That's quite a collaboration and partnership. So we're talking about Louisiana, Louisiana specific episode, right? Louisiana is a case study in early childhood quality improvement due to the work that's been happening for many, many years in the state. So what advice would you give leaders who may be receiving funding from some of the education-specific funds that the Senate has proposed for fiscal year 2023? We've been working on quality improvements for many years in Louisiana, and we might be in a different place than other states. But when we think back to where we started, We really began looking at where can you get the most bang for your buck? If you have a small amount of funding to utilize to get rolling, our first question was, where can we invest that small amount of money that's going to have more return on our investment? And our initial information indicated that we had to really think about where do we have 
professionals working in early care and education that stay in their roles over time. And while we know right now national data, data in Louisiana show us there's huge turnover of teachers in early care and education, what we don't see is turnover at the owner-director level. And that was the impetus for our investment in early care and education center owners and directors. Many of these are women. They tend to be women from underrepresented groups. And it just made sense. They were in the centers that were under-resourced. So we started there and really invested the few dollars that we had in supporting them and understanding what constitutes quality and how to have an impact in the classroom to advance that quality. Absolutely. I think we did something similar in Orleans. As Sarantha mentioned, we wear a lot of different hats. So we're the child care resource and referral agency, but we're also the administrator for the Orleans Parish quality improvement efforts, as well as kind of our early Head Start locally funded municipal scholarship program. And so for us, the key aspect was how do we leverage each of these roles and each of these funding streams and braid them effectively? And so because we could focus on some our brand new educators in the classroom through some of our CCRNR work, we also took an approach of investing heavily in the leaders as well. You know, I think about this, you know, we're, we're coming out, although I don't know what that means, of a pandemic. And we also are prone to hurricanes here in Louisiana. And so we've spent a lot of time working with directors around emergency preparedness. And we helped provide case management towards helping our directors complete their, and then actually get their PPP loans forgiven, right? So we spent a lot of time thinking about this systems level improvement because we felt that was also the place where we could leverage the most public money as well as private money. And I think that that's what's been so helpful is we've got some funding coming into our communities for the first time, but you also have a moment in time where foundations and philanthropy are really eager to think about investing. And so our biggest wins, I think, have happened because we've been able to use public money and then leverage it against private money to make a much bigger splash in the community. Thank you for that. I hear, you know, we talked very broadly about it being a small amount of money. So I think I just kind of want to talk about an amount, right? So people can visualize what that looks like. So if there was $50,000 or $100,000 that you were given, right? I heard from Jen some investments, specific investments in leaders, like, you know, emergency preparedness, PPP, loan forgiveness. But Sarintha, you were at a different place, right? So <laughs> what did that initial investment in the leadership look like? Like what were some of the things that happened? So I think we we are in a different place right now with funding, but I want to think back to our initial funding and it being small amounts, we were looking at investing in our childcare owners and directors, those site-based leaders around class and getting them trained initially on what is the class tool? What does it look like? Why is it the right tool? Why is it important? And having them not just 
begin to understand it, but being trained to become reliable observers and then investing for them to become actual trainers on the class tool. When I think about our initial network and where we were as a network leadership team, we were a small but mighty team. And we needed, as I think about, you know, Jen talking about leveraging other resources, some of these childcare owners had 20 or longer years in the field. And some of them had master's degrees in early childhood education. And there were a wealth of knowledge. And it was about investing in them to learn this new tool that in Louisiana adopted as the sole metric for measuring quality and investing them in them to understand it, but then also supporting them to support others, to learn about it, become reliable observers. And then those are the individuals that we also dedicated resources for them as well as our team members to be able to, you know, train on and coach on class as well. Class is an amazing investment. I, I don't say that just because I work here either. <laughs> it was amazing, you know, even as it was introduced to us through the pilot, right, in Louisiana. It was definitely a turning point <laughs> in how we care for children in the classroom, what that quality looks like. And it, of course, marked improvements in system successes, right? Um, which helps them to get more dollars, right? That it's a whole <laughs> cycle of success based off of, you know, adopting class as that metric of quality in the classroom. So onboarding them, getting them familiar, knowledgeable in that, help them to be successful with that. So not a quick fix, not, you know, a Band-Aid, something that is sustainable and really is impactful for a long period of time. Well, I mean, all the time <laughs> from here moving well, forward. And then even thinking about the tool in a different way and thinking about how you use parallel processes. So we're supporting teachers to develop relationships with the children in their classroom, but it also is foundational to leadership at the center level because directors need to build relationships with the teachers in their centers. And now more than ever, when we see this incredible turnover of teachers in early care and education, we are really supporting those same directors to think about the culture of their organization, that we still have some centers that have minimal turnover. So we know that our teachers are not making a livable wage. We need to be looking at fair compensation packages for them. But when you look at if you take that off the table, because across centers, they're not making a livable wage. They don't have decent compensation packages, but there are centers that have stability of staff, consistent staff over time. And a lot of that we believe is the culture of that organization and that leader using those parallel processes and recognizing that that stability of their workforce is grounded in the relationships they have within their centers. You're correct. All of the things you said was music, right? I'm just like, parallel process. I'm like, oh, yes, because interactions matter. Whether, like you said, it's teachers and children, educators and child, or those adult-adult interactions that we have. Um, yeah. Both of those are 
impactful and lead to the success for all, all those involved, Jen. You were yeah, I, I mean, I think about when you said fifty thousand dollars, right? Like we had some modest investments like that early um, when we started this work. And one of the best things we did, and it really aligns with what Sarintha said, was we actually trained a cohort of directors to become MMCI facilitators. And it was phenomenal, right? Because not only were we coaching our staff and we had trained our staff, but then we actually had folks who were not employees of Agenda for Children who could also work alongside us and deliver that. And I think about the most successful one we did was, you know, we established there were 18 simultaneous cohorts of MMCI (laughs) happening at the exact same time, co-facilitated by, you know, one employee of Agenda and one director. And, you know, $50,000 got us pretty far, actually, because we, you know, again, we could leverage it. But, you know, it made it a really fun community. And as someone who has to wear a lot of those hats, right? It became that we weren't just the lead agency, but then, you know, our directors were making really deep connections with our staff as the R&R professionals. And then they too were able to problem solve in real time. And I think about that. I remember we put through almost 300 people in about, you know, a one semester cycle. And it was pretty phenomenal. Absolutely. Um, For those listening, you know, class not only has this observation tool where we capture, right, those quality interactions in the classroom, there's also coaching tools that support teachers and their growth and their class journey, helps them to understand the behaviors, but also tie those behaviors to what they're already doing in the classroom and making plans to get more of the things that they do already (laughs) into those days. And so class group coaching, MMCI, making the most of classroom interactions is what Jen is referring to and what that does. Thank you so much. And yes, MMCI is very, um, a very impactful, right? It's in bite-sized chunks, right? <laughs> They're able to really dissect those dimensions, understand them, put them into practice, identify those behaviors. Wonderful. And that's a lot of people to get in and done. <laughs> in yeah, just- and our class scores, I mean, dramatically, we had a huge, that was the year, I believe we had the largest growth in the state. And we completely believe it was because we had so many folks in this intensive, you know, kind of experience along the way on MMPI. Oh, that's beautiful. And then the teachers feel really successful too, right? Because, <laughs> right, the yeah. things that they were doing are validated through this tool, right? And then it's showing up in this yeah. way that celebrates the work that they are doing. And it puts the director also in a leadership role, right? And so not only, as Sarantha was saying, you know, are they the expert? But then in our case, it was also validated with this partnership that we trusted, right? And we were investing kind of communally in our directors to be able to lead these programs, both in their centers as well as other centers. I'll I'll never forget one of them, you know, left and actually did the training across the street at a competitor site later on because they, you know, were really impressed with the work that we had and they had done. Wow. Yes. And helping leaders to recognize their abilities, right? Because sometimes you get so stuck in the day-to-day of the childcare world, right? Or right, the early education world, you forget that there's you have this power, right? You have this ability to do other things and impact in other ways. And so opening that up for them and providing them that leadership to do that, I'm sure was empowering as well. So um and it shows up in how they show up 
in a vast majority for more roles in leadership and visibility across the state. So it all started with you guys saying, hey, you can do this, right? Like, <laughs> you've got this, you, you know, <laughs> you can lead this, you're able. And so that opened the door to other types of work that has expanded in Louisiana. So at what point in the early stages of planning, Louisiana's early education system, did you start to think, hey, we're really doing something here, right? We're making a difference, right? We're being really impactful. We're feeling it, you know, with our families, our children, our, right? When did that happen for you in those early stages? Well, it's funny for me because I think Jen used a word that almost set you up to ask that question. And that was the director who went across the street to train at her competitor's site. And one of the times that I believed that we had turned a corner and we really were making an impact was when this network of directors, leaders, and networks of providers we were bringing together, A, began to realize that they had expertise and this tool really validated what they knew, but also when they decided they were all colleagues and not competitors. Mm -hmm. and, and I think there are two things that happen there is that this sort of community being brought together around a common purpose, you know, using a common tool, having common language and a common lens through which we look at interactions in classrooms, but also beginning to recognize as we broaden our reach and thought about access to quality, they began realizing that there are so many children we're not serving and we're not going to serve anytime in the near future because we have insufficient early care and education or childcare or early Head Start, whatever program you want to name and put them all together, we're all together still insufficient in meeting the needs for access in our community. So beginning to see we're not competitors, we're colleagues, and how do we work on this together? Those two things really begin to, for us, we began to believe we've turned the corner, we've made a difference, and we're starting to have an impact. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Sorintha. I think that the goal of collaboration and networking was kind of the, the early goal, right? And we used class as a way to help us facilitate that. And I think for us, you know, that MMCI example was a was a huge win. But I think about how that type of experience leveraged and springboarded us into, you know, really, really incredible things. So for example, we, you know, in Orleans Parish just passed a massive millage where we're going to be able to provide upwards of 2,000 full day, full year childcare, free childcare for infants and toddlers for up to 2,000 kids. That would not have happened if we hadn't made those relationships in that MMCI classroom where then they went from the classroom to the campaign trail. And our providers were the ones who led that effort. And they had a way to talk about quality, right? They had a way to talk about how to assess quality. You know, when people could stand up and say, well, how do you know that, you know, we're going to put seats in places that are successful, right? And are going to use the dollars and have the most impact on children in a positive way. They had not just language and talking points, right? But 
at this point, you know, almost eight years of data to prove. And I think that that still is one of the ways that we've been successful at leveraging what's happening in the classroom and what can be assessed and then use that towards some of these bigger, much larger system influence and impactful events. Oh, those are some beautiful shares. Yes, I agree. The collaboration, there, there was a shift, right? And you could really feel that shift, the energy, right? Even with visiting, you know, because we were at a place where it was so competitive, there was no visiting another center without some ulterior motive, right? <laughs> and now it's just like, come on in, let's have lunch, right? Let's talk about, <laughs> right, how we can um, support each other. So there was di- really a really definite shift that you could feel in the air, really based off of what you you said, not seeing each other as competitors, but in, you know, working toward the same goal in our communities. So what's next? You guys are advocates, right, for <laughs> this work. Um, and as you know, the work is never done, <laughs> especially in this field. So what vision are you working towards in this moment? We're at an inflection point here locally, right? So we are in a position of having to rapidly scale our entire network of publicly funded seats in in less than six months, basically, right? We passed this major ballot initiative, which is going to increase access for families across the city. But that comes with a lot of challenges that we need to immediately address for that to be a really successful transition. Educator workforce is going to continue to be an issue, right? Sarintha has said it, and and I'll repeat here. It's great to have quality teachers, but if we can't retain them and we can't count on them to be there for a variety of reasons, we're putting a lot of time and investment into individuals who aren't staying in the field. And at the end of the day, we can have the money for seats, you can have the directors, you can even have the buildings, but if you don't have folks who are willing, able, and successful in the classroom, we're going to have a lot more challenges. And so for us, we've been just laser focused on retaining the existing workforce, because again, we're losing right now about 40 to 50% each year. So keeping them in the classroom and then ensuring that they feel and can see themselves in a career progression You know, for so long, teachers, you know, kind of see all themselves as I can be an educator, I can be an assistant teacher, I can be a teacher in the classroom, I might be able to move up into an administrator role. And those are my three roles. And now we're saying, wait, you can be a coach, you can be a trainer, you can be an inclusion specialist, you can really think about your pathway in a way that, you know, allows you to think about the future. So I would say that for us, hands down. And the most important aspect about that for us is about compensation, right? And ensuring that women in particular are getting what they need to survive, which is very hard right now in a post-pandemic world. And so I keep pushing us kind of as a network and as a state to stop trying to get to $20 an hour, right? Like that that's the bare minimum. We should be thinking about how do we compensate our childcare professionals comparably to nurses, Right. Or, you know, I think I use this metaphor all the time, but, you know, we've done this once before after World War II with nursing and in World War I after nursing. Right. Nursing was perceived as kind of a, a job that somebody could just do. And then it became a real gateway to the middle class that had professional standards and had 
an incredible, you know, professional kind of career ladder. And I think we have to get to a place where we're doing that with early care and education professionals because they are doing just incredible work and need to be compensated as such. If it's not just the dollar, right, Mm -hmm. that per hour, what are some other ideas that you propose to compensate these educators? You know, I think a lot of folks have talked about benefits packages. They've talked about total compensation. And I think that that's a good first start. But I also think about like, if we use nursing as an example, there was a huge federal investment in both hospitals as well as, you know, at the time we were kind of transitioning to a private insurance market back in the day. And so I think that we're going to have to identify public and private dollars to come together to be able to raise salaries commensurately. I think that that's probably the first thing we have to do. The other thing is that we've thought a lot about, you know, economies of scale and, you know, is there a way to think about shared services in a different way where you can mitigate the risk, but still protect the ownership of childcare centers and the owner operators. And I'm excited because we actually have a community task force that's really thinking about this. So we have about 30 different organizations that are working on Orleans Parish educator issues that are it's driving towards this millage implementation. And so I'm really going to rely on the expertise and wisdom of our community partners to help think about how we might be able to do this. I'll report back on my next podcast on what our findings are. (laughs) I would love to hear it for sure. We would love to hear it in, you know, all the listeners. Sarintha, what would you like to add? Well, obviously, we're working on some similar issues to Jen and her team in Orleans. We have committees and communities of practice and all sorts of initiatives to really look at workforce and workforce retention. One of the other big initiatives we have is around building the workforce, recruiting a more linguistically and culturally diverse workforce. Most recently, the Jefferson Ready Start Network completed a landscape analysis of access to quality early care and education. And most people who are in the field would not be surprised when we said one finding was that we have insufficient seats or insufficient access for our infants and toddlers. But the other finding was that we have children who are in Latino families are underrepresented in the publicly funded seats that we do have. And so we have a huge initiative underway. You know, first, we're just wondering why and where are the children? When we look at the population in Jefferson, and it's similar in Orleans, and I know Jen and her team are doing some similar things. But we see an increase in the Latino population, but we don't see increases in access to our publicly funded early care and education seats, even though we know these children and families would qualify. So we engaged in some efforts to gather more information. Um, We have a couple of reports published that have really outlined what we have identified as some of the issues and no surprise, right? There are trust issues. And how do we mitigate that? So we're doing a lot of partnering with Latino serving organizations in our community and gathering more information, doing more outreach, working with the faith-based community, our Latino churches. So we're educating individuals across the community And we have increased our enrollment over the last six months with, you know, a spring enrollment, common enrollment system that really did outreach using those Latino serving organizations. 
But now we're really looking at and recognizing that we don't have teachers. We have very few teachers in our early care and education sites who are Spanish speaking. We have few leaders who are bilingual. So we have several initiatives underway, including recruiting Spanish-speaking teachers, supporting them in classrooms with bilingual teachers, serving as mentor teachers. We're also looking at, for the first time, across Louisiana, also in Orleans and Jefferson, and for us specifically, conducting outreach to our family child care homes, and specifically those family child care homes that are led by Spanish-speaking women who are in our Latino communities. So huge undertakings there, more about recruitment there, but at the same time, like Jen and her team are doing, a lot of other initiatives around retention of the teachers that we have. Wonderful. I love that you've, you know, we've really been thinking about family child care homes. You're right, those hidden gems, <laughs> right, of the early child care world. When you guys are doing that outreach, is it just to the registered providers or are you also reaching out to the, you know, other providers who don't want to go through the process of going through registration? We're open to all. We are using grant dollars and philanthropic dollars to conduct outreach um, because, again, we're learning. We want to know where are the Latino children in our community, and if they're in a family childcare home that is not registered or not certified, then we still want to learn more about those sites. We wanna partner with those sites. We want trusted organizations working with us to work with them to figure out how do you, um, where are you? What are you interested in? How can we support you? What could it look like? We're not gonna pretend to be the experts on family childcare homes, family childcare services. We certainly know what some of the metrics are in terms of adult-child interactions, but we need to gather information. We need to build coalitions. We need to really figure out what is needed and how we can collaborate, we're not going to run in saying we're the expert. And we do know that many will be in different places. Some might be registered. Some We do know some are certified. And in Louisiana now, they have the opportunity to become part of our quality system where they can be um, have academic assurances and academic approval. So then their quality gets published alongside, eventually alongside of childcare centers. But we know in Jefferson, and I know there are some in Orleans that with no recruitment effort at all, they've said, hey, yeah, we're ready to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, we want class observations. We want supports to increase the quality. We want our quality published. So we know those exist, but our real target are the others because when we look at our data, when we look at our numbers, we know that more children are in sites that are not yet registered or certified. Thank you for that, Sarintha. Um, We talked um, some about retention, right? I'm just curious, and it's always a conversation, especially if you're listening, you're just like, how, you know, how do I keep people like, so what are your ideas? Like, what are you guys doing to help providers to keep educators in their classrooms? There's a lot. 
right? And I would argue that our providers are actively leading the charge on this. They're the ones who are closest to the problem. Um, so we've heard a lot about compensation and benefits, right? We've heard about, you know, retention stipends and things like that. We've heard about thinking about healthcare in a, in a slightly different way where they're picking up, you know, especially during the pandemic, they're both establishing programs as well as paying for all of those programs. But the biggest thing that I've kind of heard that I'm excited about is really thinking about directors kind of mentoring younger educators and helping them think about opening up their, you know, centers. And, you know, I'm not going to go as far to call it a franchise model, but there is starting to see, especially with this massive expansion that we're going to have to have here in Orleans Parish, we are going to have to find ways to both retain the workforce as well as ex quickly expand the number of op owner operators that we have. And so we're seeing that this career ladder infrastructure is one of the biggest things that is helping people propel and, and stay in the field. You know, you, UVA has done a lot of research about, you know, the, the state of the field here. And, you know, one of the things that was probably the most surprising to me is that even our Head Start teachers, who we would argue are, are, are highest compensated, are even experiencing really high levels of food insecurity. And so it's not just about like giving them a potential job in the future, but it's also thinking about how do we provide additional wraparound supports in the interim to our existing workforce. And so as we think about our publicly funded seats, we've spent a lot of time bringing in mental health consultation and trauma supports for our existing staff and also trying to connect them to social services while we're simultaneously doing the, I would argue, most critical work of, you know, figuring out how to compensate people for the work that they do. I love the idea of all of that. Thank you for sharing. And it will hopefully create some thoughts for other organizations who might be wondering where to start and, you know, what is important from the ground. Well, Jen and I um, often uh, think similarly, and that's exactly where my brain was going. And I, I think it's worth reiterating that, you know, the data that University of Virginia has published on stress levels in teachers in Louisiana, those lack of resources, lack of access to mental health services, for example, are just so critical. And I do think it's, you know, one of the most important initiatives that we all have going. It's also offered statewide for teachers. And we just really can't turn a blind eye to that data. We have to think about what are those different resources. In some ways, it's not just about the dollar. It is about the total support for our teachers to stay in the field and just love what Jen's talking about in terms of that mentoring. And we all know that as we expand access, we do have to think beyond our current workforce and we really have to think about mentoring our, our teachers. We have to think about bricks and mortar. I mean, that is just where we are. While we're, you know, I love Jen, but I'm, I'm jealous because we don't yet have a millage, um, but it is one of the next steps for us and know that we have to start with that education piece, but we have to have the support of our leaders. We have to have the support of our teachers and we know that if we had that millage in Jefferson right now, we'd be just like Jen. We would be figuring out how to ramp up because we just don't have 
the actual space to enroll more children at this point. And we've got to have systems that recognize our teachers, support our teachers, mentor our teachers, and really show them that this is a career field. It's not just a job that has one or two opportunities. Opportunities are endless. Yes. And that's what you guys are creating. That's what's, that's what I love about Louisiana. <laughs> Such innovators. <laughs> um, and just also really in touch with the people you interact with, right? So you're interacting with people on different levels and really taking that information and applying it to all the processes in the stages in the growth of the state. So I really appreciate all the work that you guys have been doing. Just to comment on what you said that you know, when we look at our journey over time, we even started today talking about initial investment in um, child care leaders, but we've had to touch people at all levels. And I think one of the things that we're working on as well, and Jen and her folks just did so successfully, and that is work with and educate our business leaders our local governmental leaders, and we've gotten some of that support in Jefferson, and we're super excited. When you go into a meeting and you have a local council person stand up and champion early care and education and do it in a way that is so articulate and and use data that when, when I was in a recent meeting of a, of a large influential business organization and the parish councilman stood up and talked and then looked at me to add anything and I just said, wow, there is nothing I can add. This man is our champion and he said it so beautifully. And so it really is, you know, you might have to start somewhere, but you really have to think about that advocacy, that education at all levels if you're going to change systems in big ways. That's a wonderful note to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sorrentha. The time went by really fast. <laughs> Thank you both for joining me today. You guys were an absolute pleasure. Um, and I think that everything that you provided will help other systems in other places to be successful um, in expanding and enhancing their early care networks. You can find today's episode and transcript on our website, teachstone.com slash impacting. And as always, behind great leading and teaching are powerful interactions. Let's build that culture together. Thanks again. Are you looking to expand your quality improvement efforts and build foundational class knowledge with teachers? Consider class group coaching, also known as MMCI, a coach training and teacher professional development program. The program trains coaches in your organization and prepares them to deliver class training to teachers in a group setting. By developing an in-house class instructional coach, organizations help teachers identify, understand, and apply class interactions. Class group coaching has shown to improve teacher-child interactions, foster positive relationships between coaches and teachers, and build support amongst colleagues. To learn more about class group coaching, visit teachstone.com.